I'd like to welcome Roy Hay to the Book Cave. Welcome, Roy. Thank you, Jen. It's marvellous to be here. What a wonderful location. (laughs) Thank you, yes. Books. We Mm. love books. So, Roy, you are, in fact, a writer of non-fiction. I don't know that that's absolutely true, Ah. but most of it is attempts at non-fiction, I think. is, Is that because history actually has a lot of fiction in it, do you think? I think at the very least you can say that history has a lot of material that is argumentative and therefore we're still trying to work out the puzzle and find out what the truth really is about things. And of course there are competing versions of that and therefore, as you know, when you're writing your novels, (laughs) right, you want to be fair to all the uh, personnel who appear in this. Uh, on the other hand, the boring thing about history, but the essential thing about history is you can't wander too far from the evidence, whatever that evidence is. Right. And that's what pulls you back to the essence of history, I think. I see. Okay, I like that. So let's go back to the beginning a bit mm-hmm. of Roy Hay. So Scottish, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, Can't disguise that. No, definitely not. And actually grew up in a small village in the southwest mm. of Scotland. Is that yeah. right? I was born within a long drop punt of Burns's cottage in Alloway, which is on the outskirts of Ayr. But in 1947, my father got the headmastership of a very small uh, primary school in a village called Straton. And that's where we moved in 1947. Wow. So Mm. just after the war. Just after the war. And very small, and a small school. Mm. So I'm interested, because it seems to me that you have the great love of, obviously, soccer, which is one of the defining things, I suspect, in your life, but books as well. Mm -hmm. So you uh, write non-fiction, or, yes, as we've discussed, Mm. in history, but I think you're a great fiction reader as well. Oh, certainly, yes. Um, So, the formative years, what sort of books helped to form Roy Hay in that village of Straton? It it was an omnivorous reading pattern. I mean, I'd read Waverley novels, but a lot of it, Famous Five, and um, uh, I detective novels from quite early in in the piece. Um, but really, whatever cropped up. And when I left the primary school and went to Carrick Academy in Maybole, which is about nine miles away, mm. um, I was very lucky in the teachers I had at that point. Um, for two reasons, I suppose. One is the the Scottish system of education was a very broad rather than a deep one, so that you would be studying a whole range of subjects. And so we would have a French teacher who would get me, you know, dabbling in French. We had, we had a Latin teacher who taught um, by the old school method. You did your homework, you walked out and you put it down on his desk, you walked round the other side and he belted you (laughs) 
to uh, indicate that you hadn't got it right. Oh. Um, and so I learned the basis of Latin very quickly <laughs> in the first two years. But then something drastic happened. He left to become headmaster of another school. And a friend of my father's was appointed in his place. But he had a fatal flaw. He supported Air United soccer team, football team. And, of course, this meant that we could divert him from Monday to Friday by talking football rather than Latin. And my Latin went down the gurgler as a, as a result. Um, but I had also had a history teacher um, whose name has, is now a complete blank. But he introduced me to historical uh, writing, not just historical novels, but his, his proper history. Yeah. Um, and I think that must have stuck. Yeah. Okay. Because you obviously then went through secondary school, mm -hmm. high school, mm -hmm. the Carrie Academy, and then you went to Oxford. Not directly. No, by no means. Um when I left school, I went to the Air Force for a couple of years. So I was two years in the services, and then ah, we had a parting of the ways. Um, did, I, you, did you deliberately join the Air Force? Oh, yeah. I'm I, I mind keen on aircraft. That ah. was the other thing, you ah. see. I, I'm, I mean, if I go back to the beginning, even before we went to Straighten, um, we had a couple billeted on us in the house we lived in in air. And she was in the Royal Observer Corps. So she would come home with uh, aircraft recognition. You know those silhouette cards? Could you remember yeah, that? Yeah. The silhouettes well, I've never of... had them. But... Ah, yeah. um, so I, I actually had these with a little M and an S and an H on them. Before I could write my name, I could tell the difference between a Hurricane and Spitfire and <laughs> ME109 and so on, right? So I... Joined the Royal Observer Corps um, and then went to the Air Force for a couple of years. Um, so I'm out of the um, uh, normal uh, pattern, yes, I suppose. Yes. Um, although we had a very small, uh, again, a, a very small um, final two years at Carrick Academy. Um, again, uh, just... At one point, they were even talking about closing down the senior secondary. Yeah. But then they decided to bus people in from further afield and keep it going. So, anyway, two years in the Air Force, then uh, one of which I was at Manchester University doing engineering. Um, but anyway, we parted company. I knocked around for a couple of years um, doing odd jobs, doing some uncertificated teaching in a school in air, and then um, decided it was time I screwed the nut and actually did some work, work and uh, enrolled at Glasgow University. Um, first year I was doing reading English, um, uh, logic, and uh, um, one unit of history. Yeah. That was it with a view to doing a Scottish ordinary degree, which is a very broad-based thing. But that would have meant doing languages as well. So I packed that in and did honours. And uh, in the second year of that degree, I happened to finish up in a, an economic history tutorial where I met my wife. Ah, 
It all becomes clear. It all becomes clear. Indeed. Um, Honours degree from Glasgow. Um, there always was a link with Balliol. Yes. Because there was what they called the Snell Exhibition after an old fellow from the 17th century who left some money to send bright young Scots to Balliol. Yes. And uh, myself and the classics scholar, they always appointed two, one from the classics yes. and one from the whole of the rest of the university. So that's the one that I fluked. And... Um, so I'm off to Balliol, but there was a problem because we were both about to get married ah. and married scholars were not allowed to accept the Snell exhibition. Ah. So I had Christopher Hill grilling me about, you know, did you realise you couldn't um, hold this? And this egregious young Scot said, but I'm not married yet. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so they which went. Which was true. Which was true. Absolutely. So they went to the Privy Council and got the the will changed so that yes. um, married scholars could um, hold the Snell exhibition. In, How uh, extraordinary! Uh, yeah. What a great story! It's a great story. So interesting in that kind of cultural change too, ah. because obviously the idea back then, I suppose, was that if you were married, you were too mm. perhaps distracted to mm. be serious about your studies. Indeed. So. Did, did your university experience, Glasgow and Oxford, did that affect your, your writing, the, your, your, sorry, your reading, your, the way you were formed? Did you, were you exposed to a whole new kind of reading or was it still pretty much the same? I, I think, and, and you would know this yourself, I think if you do economic history, as I did, there is nothing that is not germane mm. to that Either, you know, the, the, the pure mathematics of it, um, the economic analysis of it, um, the social elements in, in uh, history and trying to make sure that the politics comes into it. Because in Glasgow, they still referred to that department as the Department of Political Economy. Okay. It wasn't economics and it wasn't economic history. Right. Economic history branched off from that. Which, yeah. of course, leads us into your first book, mm. The Origins of the Liberal Welfare Reforms, 1906 mm. to 1914, mm. first published in 1975 mm -hmm. and still in print. Still in print. Yes, still, still available, selling. in yeah. fact, on Book Depository. Yes. Yes, which is pretty impressive, I must say. <laughs> you know, a lot of authors out there who would love to have their books still in, in print, print after yeah. 42 years. Yeah, but... Not like Georgette Hare. I mean, she's well, been yes. around for much longer. But of course, this she's writing fiction, and this isn't fiction. Most of it's not. No, most of it's <laughs> not. So this obviously arises from your academic studies. Mm. So what I'm fascinated by is that you then went on to write The Development of the British Welfare State, mm. another fascinating book, and then you've really segued across to a real interest in soccer, well, football, as you would call it, as the rest of the world calls it, only Australia seems to need to call it soccer because we have the AFL. Mm -hmm. So I'm really fascinated by this this shift, this segue, mm -hmm. where we've now got a lot more books about football mm -hmm. than we have about economic history. Mm -hmm. So perhaps take us a little bit on that journey. Well, first of all, there's the family story. Mm. 
Um, my grandfather was the first Protestant captain of Glasgow Celtic. And this is James Dunhay. Dun yes. And you know that the religious wars in Glasgow were active well into the 20th century. Um, but I wasn't involved in any other way in the game. And indeed, my wife will tell you that she married me under false pretenses <laughs> because when we were at Glasgow was the only period in my life where I wasn't involved in, in, in the game. I played indoor soccer and I played squash, but not soccer. Though when she came to visit us at home in Straton in this tiny little village where we got our television from Northern Ireland, that shows you how close we were to that, um, the family would be uh, glued to this black and white television, um, which looked like um, the match was being played in a constant snowstorm. Uh, we used to say that Scottish television sent somebody out with a box brownie with a sock over the end to record the matches. You see. So she couldn't any longer uh, be unaware that there was a bit of soccer in the background. But there was no writing about it. There was no involvement in, in, in the game, really. Um, I did play at, uh, at uh, Balliol when I was there. There was a massive difference, incidentally, between uh, Glasgow and Balliol as far as soccer was concerned. In Glasgow, you played on pitches that consisted of black ash and broken glass. <laughs> so that you spent an hour after the game extracting the pitch from your legs, um, and then you had a shower. In Oxford, you played on a bowling green and washed in a sink. <laughs> <You know? laughs> anyway, we, we finish up after Oxford. I get offered a job at University of East Anglia, um, and so we uh, head off there. Um, Francis has been teaching in East Oxford and while we're a student there and keeping me in the style to which I wish to become accustomed. <laughs> you know. um, then we go to East Anglia. She gets a, a job teaching in uh, geography in one of the schools there and I have to start teaching the subject, right? So it's economic history I'm doing. Um finishing off my thesis at Oxford and after three years, 1967 to 70, I get offers of a job at Durham University, which would have been quite nice, but I thought that was the place you would spend your declining years, you know. Um, and also from Glasgow. So I went back to Glasgow this time uh, to teach and uh, become heavily involved in um, the corporate life of the university. I mean, uh, it's just about the time, uh, the beginnings of the breakdown of the post-war consensus about the welfare state and um, uh, the uh, benefits of unionism and... and um, the, a, a real attempt to create a new 
society after the war, and that consensus is breaking down. Uh, you've got people like Edward Heath, who's Prime Minister, who starts closing down shipyards in Glasgow. And uh, so we become involved with the protest movements and so on. And I'm involved in, at that stage, a bit of journalism because we actually published a a newspaper called the Glasgow News. And so I was interviewing the the shop stewards and um, the other people involved in uh, the the struggles to save um, the Scottish economy or or the old Scottish economy. and I get a bunch of uh, students at Glasgow who are um, interested in the, the sorts of history that I was teaching, which involved oral history as well as, uh, you know, the conventional yes. written history. And I also got a gig with the Open University uh, um, which had a, a Scottish component yeah. and um, with various friends at University of Strathclyde, the Open University and so on, we were really involved in the, the labour, the links between the labour movement and university at that time. So it was a really interesting time. Yeah. On the other hand, um, on the Senate of the university, um, I can see, you know, the pipe and the slippers just over the horizon. I'm built in with the bricks, you know. And then I'm sitting in my study in in Lochwinach, another little village where we we had moved to, and um, I'm reading the Times Higher Ed Supplement and here's this new university opening up in Australia that's going to do on and off campus teaching yes. in the same institution. And I said, that's my job description. We ought to go there. So I wander through and say to Francis, you know, I think I'll put in an application for, for, Deacon. for Deacon. Right? So the application goes off. I hear nothing for two months. Then I get a phone call in the middle of the night saying, can you come to London in a couple of days for an interview? Go down to London, have the interview. Think it went all right. Don't hear anything for another couple of months. Then get another phone call in the middle of the night saying, "Uh, can you come to Deakin and can you start writing study guides tomorrow for us? (laughs) (laughs) And so by... um, a couple of months later, we we're on our way to to, to Deakin and to Australia, <clears throat> and a new life in many ways. In many ways, yeah, yes, in many ways. Yes. But it, you you can see how the mongrel has been developing. I mean, that's how I <coughs> like to describe myself yeah. now as a Deakin mongrel. Yes. But I suspect there was a bit of a mongrel before I got here, and hence my reading in many ways, has been built around all the variety of things with which I've been involved. Yeah. So when you came to Australia, was it a disappointment to find that soccer was such a sort of, you know, on the side, peripheral sport um, as opposed to the AFL? Uh, we, were, we were lucky because we arrived in September 
1977, just in time to see the drawn grand final between Collingwood and North Melbourne, um, which amazed me because a lot of soccer matches tend to end in draws, some yes. of them with no goal scored. Yes. And here there was, you know, angst all around because it had been a draw. I thought, this is normal, you know. <laughs> Anyway, we, when, when we arrived at, at, at Deakin, uh, Morgan McAlinden, no. famous Irish um, musician, polymath, he was the, the, the head of um, student accommodation and, and services at Deakin, uh, lived on campus with his wife, Faye, big Irish family, and we were just simply absorbed into it. I mean, we arrive with no relatives, no links, no nothing, and we're straight into it. Um, and Morgan and I set up the Deacon Soccer Club. Right. And was that in the first week that you arrived? Well, it wasn't long after. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jim Polimus always remember, who's a, a colleague at Deacon who had actually picked us up from the airport and brought us to Geelong. He always said that he couldn't understand why I was the only member of the staff who had his desk in the authoritarian position, i.e. back to the door looking out the window. And I had to explain him, to him that I had a view of the soccer pitch, oh. and that was what was important. <laughs> OK, so you've come to Australia. And so over the next 25 years, you hmm. teach at Deakin. Yeah. And... Uh, Economic. 25 different courses in that yes, time. that's what I was yeah. going to say, yeah. yes. So, so some for Deakin and some for the Open University. Yeah. So we get a sense that what we're doing at Deakin is actually got parity of esteem around the world because the OU was very much seen as the bee's knees of yeah. um, off-campus teaching. And of course, Deakin was one of the first off-campus universities. Indeed. Apart from New England, really, yeah. we were the pioneer and, and I think really developed the whole concept of um, teaching at a distance. And what has now become, I guess, online learning, exactly. which has now become very yeah. normal. Yeah. And, you know, these wonderful study guides... Mm. Um, because I got to be an off-campus student That's right. from Deakin yes. and actually was in Papua New Guinea mm. um, for several years studying mm. and getting my materials in the mail. Mm. And I remember actually um, uh, I was studying a, a unit called Clash of Cultures mm. and we actually had a massive strike in the town and we were all confined to the houses and I had an essay due on Clash of Cultures while the national PNG workers were all... Um, holding us so all there's a cla clash of <laughs> cultures happening outside the yes. door, yes. <laughs> so it was these wonderful study guides. This is one of yours, um, Industrial Revolution mm. and Society. Um, but all the way through this, there's always football. Now, both kinds of football, because mm -hmm. it isn't just soccer now. Yeah. It's also the AFL, yeah. because you've written quite a lot about that too, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. So, okay, first of all, the most important question, who do you barrack for? Given that my club in Scotland, Air United, mm. were a bunch of provincial losers, <laughs> there was absolutely no problem. You just gravitate to the Geelong Cats because <laughs> that was in their very fallow period. Ah. 
It was the success I couldn't cope with. Oh. Yeah, no. <laughs> so what have you done now that they've won three premierships? Well, that's it. Seven, yeah. nine, eleven. Yeah, right. yeah. And who knows? Well, we're not looking too good for this season now. No, it's it's very it's very uh, serious because mm. John Harms. Do you know John Harms, yes, a yes. living national treasure? Indeed. He is personally responsible for all this because the years when his children were born were the years in which uh, Geelong won its premierships. But I think he's had the snip and uh, I don't think there'll be any any more, oh, you see. No. So we may have so to it's live. it's his fault? It's his fault, oh, yes. So he runs the footy almanac for which yes, I write. Yes, and, yeah, uh, yeah. yes. So you're still writing, of course. So you've yeah. had this long, long writing career and you've obviously moved away from um, the economic history much more now in more recent years to the yes. football. Well, you're yes. still yeah. writing economic history? Oh, yeah, I think so. I yeah. think so. And I've got a pile of it up my sleeve that still needs to come out Fantastic. sometime. Yeah. So, okay. But it, it's it's mainly been sport and both codes of football, as you say. Yes. So there you are teaching, mm-hmm. family, children, all of that. How do you find time to write? It's a European Cup final mm. in which uh, Liverpool were playing Juventus and the two sets of fans were at the each other's throats um, and a wall collapsed and 39 people died. Um, and it was all put down to the violence of the supporters, predominantly the Liverpool people. And the, there was a, a, an outpouring of criticism, as you would expect mm. in Australia, of these soccer hooligans mm. and all the rest of it. And the advertiser, I think, had a headline, Could it happen here? And when you read below this banner headline, it turned out a woman with an umbrella was the cause of the problem because she ran onto the pitch and belaboured somebody who had kicked her son. And so I wrote this long letter to um, Darrell McClure, then editor of the Geelong Advertiser, saying, look, you've got to distinguish the causes of catastrophes from the causes of violence. And this thing was treated as a problem of public order long after it had become one of public safety. And if you just look around yourself in Geelong, there's a whole series of very good things happening in the soccer footy world, Um, but nobody knows about it. Well, you shout fire, what do you get? A fireman's hat. So I finish up with a gig writing about uh, the Western Victoria uh, Soccer Association, where yes. your children have played along yes. the way, um, and uh, the, the juniors and so on um, for the Geelong Advertiser. So I'm, every week I'm writing this soccer column and having terrible battles with the sub-editors on the Addy because I want to introduce words of more than two syllables into the <laughs> soccer column. Why? Well, we've got all these bright young migrant kids who whose parents don't speak English at home, who maybe haven't got any books for the kids to read. So my argument is if they're reading Foot Rock Flats and the soccer column, just to see if Hayes said something about me... 
at least they're reading yes. something, you know. Uh, so I become involved in writing about that that aspect of the game, but academically I'm interested in the migrant clubs around Geelong with whom I've now been building up a relationship both with the players and their supporters and, and the other people around the game. And Frances brings me up short at one point. She says, what are you wasting your substance? What are you playing about this stupid game, for goodness sake? Give it away. And I'm saying, but it takes me a wee while to work it out. But then I realise that I'm sitting on this cornucopia of material about the migrant experience in Australia and how these people um, come to terms with this strange and sophisticated society in which they find themselves. I mean, it's bad enough for us. We arrive not knowing a great deal about Australia, but we've got the language, we've got a sense of what it's about, and we know the geography and and, and so on. But these are people who arrive with no English, um, maybe a very different view of how society operates if they're coming from Yugoslavia or uh, Germany or um, the Baltic republics, wherever. Um, and I'm sitting on this evidence, and there's a story that needs yes. to be told. And so I, I'm writing on the one hand about violence and sport, on the other hand I'm writing about Australian society as it evolves, um, and how people uh, become citizens of an Australian society which doesn't really quite know what to do about them. Um and, and and so it's it, it's a fascinating period, yeah. and some of it starts to begin to appear first of all in articles, um, and then I, I can date this about the year two thousand. Bill Murray, uh, another Scot, who I'd been involved with over several years, um, and he wrote about the religious wars in Glasgow, the old firm, Rangers and Celtic. And we decided we would approach the Australian Research Council for a grant to write the history of this stupid game, you know, um, in its social context yes. in, in Australia. Soccer being such an important part of the migrant experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and in a period when there were so few institutions that were really set up to enable the migrants to integrate into yeah. the, or come to terms with this society. Um, and the soccer clubs played a huge part in that because even though that wasn't their main purpose, yes, you know, mm. they enabled people to meet folk who'd come a little bit earlier. They could go to the games at the weekend, talk in their own language, learn how to relate to Australian society. And of course, the game itself and is the game, universal. Well, yeah, absolutely. You don't need to understand the language no, to no. understand the game. That's right, and it is it is the game that they have brought with them in yeah. in so many ways. Um, I will talk about the wicked foreign game yes. because that's what happens. But the, the Bill and I, as I say, decided we needed to put this down on paper. So we approached ARC, and because Bill had already got. I think at least one, if not two, of his books on Rangers and Celtic, and I think he'd 
Yes, he, he had also written the first of his world soccer books. There were two of those. We put this in through uh, La Trobe University. And the administrators at La Trobe took one look at this and said, this is not internationally competitive. We're not going to put this up uh, as an application, right? So it never even got to ARC. It was stopped at La Trobe. Um, and, and, of course, we just threw up our hands and went our different ways. But the next year, almost to the day, um, Gary Smith, who was then head of um, the social science area, comes down the corridor at Deakin and he says, we're short of applications for ARC grants. Can you just um, take that one that you put in last year and give it a tweak and try again this year? And I said, no. He said, why not? I said, well, the applications close at five o'clock. It's now half past two. Um, oh, if you bring it in tomorrow morning, it, it, you'd be all right, you know. So I went home, tweaked this thing. It was mainly putting Deacon where Latrobe had been and fiddling, <laughs> fiddling a little bit around the edges. Drove in, uh, I mean, they, they probably finished about three in the morning. Drove in to Deakin before seven, stuck it under the administrator's door. And this time it went off to yes. the Australian Research Council. Um, normally you get a, two or maybe three referees. We had five. And they got five golden apples from them. Um, and the only critical thing that came up that I could remember was uh, uh, this project is likely to seriously undervalue the contribution of British, in brackets, particularly Scottish migrants <laughs> to the game in Australia, at which point Bill and I, both being Scots, <laughs> fell about laughing. <laughs> you know? But it turned out that there was a serious academic point behind this because the Scots never considered themselves to be ethnics even though they were the first group in Australia, going way back to the 1890s, the first group to um, found clubs that were based on ethnicity rather than the local geographical um, location. So it's the Scots who are the responsible for the first ethnic football in Australia. How interesting. Yeah. Okay. So... <laughs> Yeah. Do the Scots themselves have perceive themselves having different ethnic groups within Scotland? Oh yes. Do, oh, yeah. Okay. Like yes. What? Well, there's Highlanders. I oh. mean, there's Chochsters from up there that nobody can understand, you oh. know. And there's people like me who speak Lalance rather than Scots. So mm -hmm. you speak what? Lalance. What? Lowland Scots. Oh. Mainly invented by Hugh McDiarmid, C.M. Greve, but. Uh, <laughs> A, a, a dialect of, of Scots. And then, of course, there are the Gaelic speakers as well. Right? Okay. Yeah. So, so therefore, soccer's become, is just infiltrated your whole life, really. Yeah, it's been there in the background. Yeah, and, and also in the foreground. And now, 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 in the last few years, yes. I mean, this book that we did on, on the history of the game. Well, this is a fabulous book. Uh, this yeah. is just a wonderful um, history of football in Australia. That's right. This is a huge yeah. achievement yeah. and a fantastic book. Yeah, and you realise it was a rush job. I mean, we started in 2002 and it only took us 14 years yeah. to get it. <laughs> yes, exactly right. But it's absolutely fantastic. Mm. 
And you have uh, some really interesting personal history, of course, with the history of soccer, because mm -hmm. you actually wrote to Sir Alex Ferguson. <laughs> yes, in 1986. Yes, 85, yeah. Okay, when you were obviously still prevaricating between being fully Scottish and Australian, I Indeed. think. Indeed, Is yeah. it reasonable to say that? Mm. Because, of course, that was the World Cup qualifier. Mm, yes. When Australia, the Socceroos, were playing Scotland. Correct. And you actually wrote to Sir Alex Ferguson to detail the weaknesses and the strengths of the Socceroos. So I suppose he could perhaps coach his team with a bit more precision? Something was like that. Was that the idea? That was the idea. Okay. And he actually wrote back to you. Yes. Thanking you for the advice. Mm -hmm. So... Okay, you're obviously still a bit on the Australian Scottish. Oh, I'm absolutely traitorous, aren't I? <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, goodness, am I interviewing Benedict Arnold? <laughs> <laughs> but you clearly feel very strongly and passionately about the Socceroos and Australian football now. And that was the turning point uh, in in many ways. In fact, I mean, if if you go back to the beginning of that story, what happened was um, our son Ross was playing soccer. In, in Australia, yeah. um, with, I think, the Victorian country um, under 12, 13s. Yeah. Yeah. The coach of that team told us at the end, when they won the, the local championship, that um, we'll take the kids to Europe for coaching. You know? And we just laughed and said, you know, you don't take 13-year-old kids to play football in Europe, but yay! So, and he claimed he'd got sponsorship and goodness knows what all. And um, so we got started fundraising, you know, Lamington drives <laughs> and, oh, yeah, we were doing it. Um, but then this fellow had a heart attack and dropped out and it turned out there were no sponsors and so on. But somehow or other, we managed to raise about $66,000, real money in those days. Yeah. So they've gone off, and Frances' father died at that point. So she went home for the funeral, and I eventually thought, well, I'm on my own, I might as well. So I shut up shop and followed them. And when we got to Scotland, that's when Australia qualified to play them. And, of course, my ticket was the last of the ones for the return journey, and that was schedule for the day before the game so I said that can't possibly happen we've got to organize this and we went to Hamden we saw the leg the, the first leg in in Scotland with Scotland won and then we came back to see the second leg in Australia and of course the national coach um, Frank Arak feisty um, Yugoslav he had the idea that we'll play Scotland in Darwin at noon on a bumpy pitch just to make it difficult for the Scots and we'll get a result, you see. Um, what did uh, the Australian Soccer Federation? They played it in Melbourne at Olympic Park on what was effectively a bowling green uh, in the cool of the evening with the pitch having been watered. You know, and even so, um, Australia should have won that game, but just couldn't. And in a sense, I mean, I, I'm not sure what happened precisely at that point, but that was the turning point for me 
uh, in terms of my allegiance. I, I be, ceased to be a Scot living in Australia and became an Australian with a Scottish heritage. Ah, fantastic. So the wonders of soccer mm. and the unexpected influences. There you are. Okay, yeah. but you also have, um, you said a very interesting thing actually, um, when you're talking about some of the great players like mm. Di Stefano mm-hmm. and is it Pushkash? Mm-hmm. I don't know, is that? Yes. Pushkash. And you said that they would have been still great today. You felt they would have adapted to the modern game. Oh, yes. So yeah. what, what do you see as the biggest difference between that game of sort of, you know, 30 years ago and now? I think now the game is much more athletic. You, you've got a bunch of athletes playing the game at a higher speed. Right. Um, but, I mean, the people I'm talking about are, are the kind who would have flourished in any um, generation. Um, when you look at the, the boots and the clobber they wore in those days, mm. I mean, they were carrying about a ton around and the, you got these balls that, you know, when they got wet, yeah. they smelled like a wet dog and, you know, and they weighed about a ton. And, the old and so ball, yeah. yeah, all that. Um so I, I think I remember somebody saying to uh, Sir Matt Busby, the famous manager of uh, Manchester United, "Ah, these Continentals, they, the, you know, the Pushkises and the Stefanos and Pelly and people like that. If they were playing in our mud heaps, they, you know, they would never be able to um, uh, beat us." And Busby said. If they were playing on a mud heap, they would just pass the ball six inches above the ground all the time. You know? And that's the kind of adaptability um, that the great stars would have had. The, the game has, has become um, far less physical in many ways because um, even though... Uh, physical is not the word it's become much less violent on the field in many ways one of the good influences of television is that you can see these things happening and um, you can adapt to them in a way so that the knowledge is spread much more evenly than in in the old days where if you didn't go to the game there was no other way of seeing of seeing what of was seeing happening what was yeah and adapting doing... it took much longer okay. to do that that's yeah. really interesting actually mm. isn't it yeah yeah okay so the afl then mm-hmm. so you've obviously got two loves because mm-hmm. you have a, a, a real love for the afl as well yeah and that's a game that's also changed I think quite dramatically Absolutely. in the last 30 yeah. years. Yeah. And again, it's this element of extraordinary athleticism, which is as faster, the game is faster, mm. just yeah. like in soccer. Yeah. So, okay, so you've referred to our wicked foreign game. Mm. Now, are you referring to AFL or soccer? Oh, soccer. Ah, okay. So in Australia, we consider soccer to be foreign. Indeed. Perhaps not even though, Even it's... though it has at least as long a history in this country as what we called Australian football, AFL, whatever, Melbourne rules. Um, and in both cases, I mean, you, you quite rightly say I, I'm writing about the sport, but I'm writing about the sport all the time in the context of the society of which it's a part and the way it evolves and the way that 
society influences the game and sometimes, though much more rarely I think than people realise, the game influences society. Some of the pioneering in soccer, for example, in terms of relationships with Asia, is absolutely fascinating, you know, where it's... It becomes a vehicle of of soft diplomacy. Mm. Um, we send a team to Vietnam in the middle of the yes, of the war. The war. Well, that um, was fascinating. And they come home with our first international trophy for soccer. soccer. And it's the fiftieth anniversary this year. Um, and that's what that book's what this, uh, um, about: football, football and war. Yeah, missing yeah. part of the national narrative. Exactly. So you're actually doing a great job of with your writing of filling in some of these, these gaps, gaps. Yeah. and in, I guess, broadening the sort of understanding. See, that, that's an interesting thing about soccer, but I would have said too with AFL, would you say that the AFL has actually helped, for instance, um, Indigenous integration, a better sense of, you know, the fact that we have so many wonderful Indigenous players and it's really important to, you know, get rid of the racism out of the crowds that go to the football? Mm. No, um, yes. But if you go back to the beginning, yes, right, There is a fascinating story to be told, and this is where I'm going to get, as we would say in in Scotland, my head in my hands to play with. (laughs) Because um, along with uh, a young fellow, Atis Zafiris, we have an article coming out in Mianjin next month, which argues very strongly that there is no evidence whatsoever about the nascent game of Melbourne rules, which became Victorian rules and eventually Australian rules, there is no evidence whatsoever of any Indigenous influence on that game when the rules were being drawn up. What this very small group of people associated with Melbourne cricket and football clubs did was to cherry-pick the rules of the English public schools, right? right? But draw up from them about 10, well, e- exactly 10 rules, um, which were not a carbon copy of any of the existing rules. They weren't rugby school, they weren't Eton, they weren't Harrow, uh, they weren't uh, Winchester, right? And therefore, from the beginning, we had a game of our own because it was a a cherry-picked selection. Now, people have seized on this game of our own and thought, ah, this meant this had sort of indigenous linkages or origins, right? possum skin idea, this possum skin ball idea that's been touted quite a bit? You know, I mean, what do you say to that? Well, we, we use leather balls, but the balls are all imported from England to begin with. Yeah. I mean, footy starts with a round ball, not with an oval one, right? Oh, but it's a big soggy pudding, you know, <laughs> and that's what they play with to begin with. Then Tommy Wills introduces the rugby-shaped ball, the the one with the, yeah. the pointed ends, but that has no relation to... Um, Possum skin balls or anything? Okay. No, right. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, it is, and what annoys me and, and annoys Athens is that we think that this has diverted attention from a much more complex, powerful, 
um, evidence-based story about how the few indigenous people who are left in the state, we're talking about down to hundreds mm. rather than thousands. Yeah. I mean, if the population of the area we now know as Victoria was around 60,000 before the Europeans arrived, a lot of people say that's an overestimate, but there's a strong evidence that it, it's of that order of magnitude. By the end of the 19th century, you're down to under a thousand. So it's not just decimation, which means, you know, chopping by a tenth. It's near this genocide. Is, this is genocide. Yeah. This is 99%. And I mean, it's much worse in Victoria than it is anywhere else in Australia. So these few indigenous people who are left are in mission stations or government stations scattered around the periphery of the state. Ebenezer up in the, the Wimmera, Lake Conda just north of uh, Portland, um, Framlingham near Warrnambool, uh, Ramayuk and um, Lake Tyres down in East Gippsland. Right, yeah. the only one that's within uh, a day and a half's march of Melbourne is Corinderk, uh near Hillsville, uh, yeah. Lilydale, that area, um, and we're talking about hundreds of people, right, of whom not all are young men of football playing age, but they see the white men playing their stupid game and think we could do that. And they break into that game despite the force fields that are preventing them from leaving the mission stations and despite the gatekeepers of the white men's game who don't want to bother these um, folk, they get in as individuals and eventually they manage to form teams and they play in local leagues. The Kamaragunja mob, who start in New South Wales, but then move uh, down to near Barma. Um, because that part of New South Wales, south of the Riverina, is orientated towards Melbourne rather than towards Sydney, yeah. they pick up the southern game and they get into the Moira League and they win it five times out of six, Right? They come down to uh, Bendigo and Hammer. You know, this is one of the big yeah. local teams. And, and there's one guy writing about this. He says, it's wonderful to see the, the scions of this dying race running rings, and I mean actual physical rings around the white men. Eventually they're handicapped. The local league says you can't play anybody in your team who's older than 25, you see. Uh, Doug Nichols, who becomes a famous footballer and then governor of South Australia, he's one of the Kamaragunja mob, right? And and this is replicated at Ebenezer, it's at Lake Conda, um, and it's at Lake Tyres. 1913, Carlton are due to go on their end-of-season trip after winning the, the VFL yes. uh, to Sydney. But there's a smallpox outbreak in Sydney so they go down the valley and they play a game against Lake Tyres it's the first time that a full scale Aboriginal team played a top line footy team team. 
VFL. And this comes after umpteen refusals by the VFL to allow um, their clubs to play against uh, Aboriginal teams when they asked to come here. So, I mean, this has evidence. This is something that happens in the second half of the 19th century. Indigenous people try and break into the white man's game. And in the latter part of the century, beginning of the 20th century, they are doing so. So they are the pioneers that we should be researching. And this will explain why when Martin Flanagan was floating this um, indigenous origins thing, a guy responded to him on email, Dennis from Dimbula. He said, um, we had a couple of Aboriginal guys playing in, in the team. And I remember somebody saying on the sidelines, they ought to be good at it. It's their game after all. And nobody contradicted him. Where did we get that from? Well, my answer is we got it from the Ebenezer Mission where these guys were playing. They were actually paid, being paid to play in the 1880s. Wow. So, I mean, to me, this is a far more interesting story than the the one that we are fed, force-fed about Marngrook and its influence on the game. And then you get individuals who transcend the sport. Um, And the guy whose um, biography I'm trying to write at the moment is a fellow called Albert Pompey Austin. Now, first of all, Pompey, where does that come from? Roman general, right? Or um, Jeff Blaney uh, said to me when I uh, said, you know, what do you think? He said, well... um, the word Pompey was used to describe a black kettle in uh, Yorkshire and the north of England. Or if you were dodging Pompey in the south, right, that was avoiding being confined to the hulks as a prisoner. Right. Right? Yeah. So some uppity black guy might well get Pompey Pom- stuck on him from somebody who had that kind of background we don't know but anyway Albert Pompey Austin played one game for Geelong and he played with Tommy Wills would you believe in 1872 right and he had come down from Framlingham uh, to take part in the friendly society's um, uh, athletics meeting pedestrian meeting as they called it And he won every race inside. He won the 100, 200, 400, the hurdles, steeplechase, right? Comes back again in uh, at Easter uh, for the Carayo Cricket Club Sports. Doesn't do nearly so well there. Does come third in one of the races. But the very next day, he's playing for Geelong. And he's the only Indigenous player that we've found that played for a top-line club in a competitive match. Geelong versus Carrollton, first game of the season, 1872. And it finished up a no-score draw. Oh! Right? Because that's what footy was like in those days. It was a a, a no-score draw. 
there were some games went on for three days without scoring because it was a low-level scrummaging and kicking game in which weight and strength were much more important. There was no... I think there's only one example of a newspaper report where somebody jumps to catch the ball. So high marking, which a lot of people associate yeah, with, with the indi- with indigenous yeah. people, is not a feature of the game. Oh, right? Wow. And Pompey is not just a footballer and an athlete, right? He's a cricketer. He's a horse race owner, right? He wins a race yeah. on his own horse. He's a horse thief. He's <laughs> an entertainer. He's a musician. He's a savant, right? Yes, yes. Can you imagine the corner in Ballarat, up, probably up the top, Lydiard and Sturt Street, yeah. right? Um, he's talking to a crowd. This is like Hyde Park Corner in London. Yeah. He's on his soapbox, oh, so, yeah. right? Entertaining this crowd with a disquisition on the political situation and the prospects for war. But What year was this? Uh, 1886, wow. right? Um, there's not much money uh, coming in. Uh, he sees a bunch of Scots in the audience, miserable <laughs> bunch. Not much you know, money from there definitely not. <laughs> so what does he do? He breaks into um, talking about the beauties of the Scottish countryside and singing Scots songs. <laughs> right? The money's poor, then. Like, so I- do you remember? Um, Mary Durack's Kings and Grass Castles. Yes, yes. He gets a mention in that, right? Because he rocks up at her father's place, um, and what was he describing? The phenomenal uh, Aboriginal Pompey Austin singing the latest music hall songs from London. Wow. So okay. So this must be your next project, I guess. It is. Right, so we're going to expect another wonderful book. I hope so. That would yeah. be fantastic. Well, before we go, it's been wonderful having you in the book cave, Roy Hay. Thank you. <laughs> you need to tell us, please, your three books that you would leave the world. So we have our time capsule. A thousand years from now, what are the three books that you're going to leave the world in the time capsule? Well, there's obviously got to be a bit of soccer in it, right? Definitely. The ball is round, right? David Goldblatt who's a sociologist, but a brilliant writer. And if you want a single volume that um, deals with the story of the game, uh, analytic but um, dynamic and a great read, paperback edition, please, because when he brought out the hardback, he pinched a lot of my material but didn't acknowledge it. But it's in in the paperback edition. Well, that's very generous of you too, then. (laughs) And then two quirky ones, both soccer-related, right? Quirky, I'm not so sure. Um, The Football Man by Arthur Hopcraft, um, which is just, it's very dated now. It was written in the 60s, I think. Um, It is full of using individuals to bring out the broader story of of the game. Uh, 
obviously, you know, talks about some of the superstars and talks about um, great games and so on, but it's not just that. And it does make the, the strongest point that this game is too good for people to um, destroy it by unconscionable behaviour. He says it much more euphoniously than I've said it here, but that's the point. Um, And then another one um, by Harry Pearson, entitled A Maisy Dribble Round the Northeast. And this is going to see the grassroots club in an area which is, as they say, a hotbed of football. And he has a lovely story of going to watch this little village team uh, on a cold, dreary night. Um, And when he's coming back to get the train um, back south, uh, he's got a little bit of time to kill, so he goes into the local bookshop and gets chatting with the fellow and the fellow says to him you know what have you been doing why are you here oh he says i've been up watching the team uh are they still going (laughs) yeah thought they'd disappeared yeah and harry reflects on that this village you know there is nothing written down about these people so when they go their brilliance, their contribution. They're an amateur team. They had, over the years, I think they had somewhere between 30 and 40 people played at national level. Um, The guys who did the Mason-Dixon line came from the village. Um, But as he says, you know, if they'd been ballet dancers or opera singers, there would be statues to them, statues to them, Everybody would know about them. Their histories would all be written up. But this is, when these guys go, there will be no memory of them whatsoever. And as he says, you know, that is absolute bollocks. (laughs) So he, you know. He wrote the book too. And he has written the book in a celebration of these little grassroots clubs, which should never be forgotten. Wonderful. Well, I think it's really apposite that given the incredible per, you know, penetration of soccer around the world mm. and the fact that it's played everywhere mm. by men and women, mm. boys and girls, mm. um, I think it's really great to have three books and perhaps give us a, a wonderful sort of rounded overview mm. of soccer and its contribution. We haven't got one on the Matildas, but I've met a young lad today or re- yeah. very recently who's uh, about to write a history of the Matildas as his PhD thesis. Fantastic. Well, Roy, it's been absolutely delightful. Thank you for coming into the bookcase. It's been my pleasure. You know that I will rabbit on for hours about this game, (laughs) given a chance. Fantastic. Thank you so much. In the Bookcave was recorded at the Mance with the assistance of 94.7 FM Geelong and produced by Corner Shop Studios, Jam Lab and Creative Geelong.